Hello, and welcome back to Dollars and Dragons. This episode, we have Kiana Shaw with us today. If you'd like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Kiana. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, as said, I'm Kiana Shaw. I am a TTRPG designer, writer, community uh, creator, and advocate. Just many, many different hats. Most people would know my name as the uh, co-curator of the TTRPG Safety Toolkit, or as a contributor to projects such as um, Candlekeep Mysteries, or Cyborg, or Starforged, and many, many more. Uh, but I'm also one of the contributors for the Vineyard, obviously. Yeah, um, I was, you know, actually, uh, before we get into, like, I really want to talk about the toolkit, but for sure, I feel like I lucked out because I remember you posted on Twitter, of all places. Well, we'll, we'll see where Twitter is in, like, a couple of months. But <laughs> when I first contacted you, Twitter was, like, basically the place to look for fl- freelancers. And at the time, you had posted, like, I'm actually looking for freelance work. And I think within 30 minutes of you posting that, I was just like I was like in your DMs trying to get you to, <laughs> to well, work like, out. Yeah, yeah. So I I totally lucked out on uh, on getting in touch with you in that respect. So used to be or perhaps still is a great networking tool, but. <laughs> Yeah. With that being said, let's talk about the TTRPG Safety Toolkit. Um, how did it come about and what is your general... Looking back on it, it's been out for quite a while now and it seems like it has received, at least from my perspective, uh, wide adoption. If you want to start with that. Yeah. So uh, for those of you who don't know what the TTRPG Safety Toolkit is, it is basically a living resource uh, co-curated by myself and Lauren Bryant-Monk, uh, which basically compiles and makes accessible uh, different safety tools uh, that have uh, been created and exist uh, around the TRPG space. Um, and it's all just like a Google uh, Drive, which just has a, a bunch of different links and guides and uh, transcripts of panels and all these other things and translations too. Um, which uh, have made uh, safety tools a little more easy for people to to know about and to learn about uh, and to therefore then use. In terms of where it started off, uh, it actually started off um, probably in the in the midst of the time that I was more deeply into the actual play community. Uh, I used to do a lot of streams uh, and and participate in those uh, quite more uh, often than I do now. But one of the channels that I frequented at the time. Um, uh, one of the players was like, oh, yeah, we're going to be using uh, the X card here as well as the N and O card. And I, I was watching this and I was going, wow, this sounds great. Like this ability to, um, with safety tools, uh, communicate uh, your content boundaries, what you want to play, what you don't want to play, uh, and navigate uh, difficult conversations when people uh, end up playing into uncomfortable or uh, uncomfortable content. Um, I was just like, I don't know why I've never heard of these before. I don't know why more people aren't using these. And so at the time I started researching uh, and I realized a lot of the places that the safety tools were first introduced or talked about um, were often on forums uh, and sites that have disappeared off the internet, uh, looking at at, at uh, the Google uh, forum stuff, right? It's a lot of uh, places where it wasn't easy to find this information. Um, and so at first I was just like, hey, uh, fellow streamer friends, uh, would you uh, be interested in learning more about safety tools and for me to like pull together some of the common ones I have found? And it had it was a pretty resounding, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, and so I just kind of made a document. I was just like, I'll just like write a, a quick thing about like here are safety tools you used before a game, or during a game, or after a game, and specifically for live streams. 
And I remember that day because I, I had put it out. I just tweeted out the the, the image and, and link to it. And I left to go watch a movie. And I came back to my phone after the two-hour movie and my notifications had exploded. Partially from people who are like, wow, I've never heard of these before. This is so cool. And partially from people who are like, how dare you do this? This is this is babying your game. How you're, you're going to censor me and my games by introducing these things. Uh, but the overwhelming thing was mostly people being like unaware that this was a thing. And then there were some people who were like, this is great. Have you heard of this other tool? Uh, I would love to see this other thing added on. And I was like, this is great. So over time, I started like collecting more and more of these tools and like making sure to get the the names of the uh, the people who made them and try to find as much of a source link as I could. And I was trying to figure out how I wanted to do the update because originally it was just like a PDF that I had made. And Lauren reached out to me and was like, hey, there's a local con going on. I was wondering if you'd want to do a panel about safety tools with me. I was like, great, that sounds awesome. Um, and we realized that um, the place that we had been put uh, for this panel did not have AV. So there's no no way for us to do what we were originally planning, a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, and so we we're like, oh God, how do we how do we make this work? Like how do we talk about this stuff and also like give people something to work with? Because it's a pretty abstract concept at that time. And that's when uh, we came up with the idea of doing kind of a combination, uh, creating something for for this panel, and also updating uh, my original talk about safety, uh, like document of safety tools uh, to create the the toolkit, uh, a, a thing that a link that we could just give to the attendants of this of this panel and go, hey, here's like if you want to look up these other safety tools and stuff. Um, and that gave me an opportunity to also go down and sit and update this guide that I had made with all these new safety tools. And it really helped us restructure it to be a living uh, resource, something that is regularly updated uh, and, and it collects um, all different resources. And it's been kind of a community effort from there on. Um, I've had a ton of, over the, the couple of years it's been out, have people reach out to me being like, hey, I'd love to contribute this like safety thing that I wrote for this other tool or for like this virtual tabletop. We've had a really great influx this past year of uh, people reaching out from over the world and being like, hey, I translated the guide to my language, uh, the language of the community that I'm in. And here you can add it to the toolkit and make it more accessible that way. So yeah, but where it really started with me just being like, I don't know why other people don't know about this. And it's been kind of widely fascinating to see how much uh, safety tools and its adoption has changed over the time since I first released that versus now. As you said, it is fairly widely adopted. And it's amazing because at the time, we were starting to kind of move into this cultural shift towards more accepted talks about a focus on on safety in gaming and, and creating comfortable bases of play. And I don't want to say that the toolkit is the reason for the, for the push that it had in our spaces, but I do think that did help. It did help to make things easier to look at because it was just a one-stop shop for people to, to, to check in from. Uh, and we've always made it pretty open uh, for people to reference in their own stuff. We just ask that they don't be a fascist, which I think is a pretty easy bar to pass uh, <laughs> um, yeah for some people yeah for some people um so yeah so that's that's kind of what the the toolkit is and we continue to do our curation work uh we came to you know again uh garner feedback uh whether that's uh people adding, wanting to add more tools or add translations or other community work to it and yeah and it, it did um it won a uh, an any back uh last uh in 2021 yeah 
which was pretty fantastic. That was that was pretty wild to experience, um, as I was saying, to to experience like, oh yeah, this is this is something that people are are interested in and it's important and it is an important cultural game cultural work, which is wild to think about. <laughs> Yeah, I personally, I use um, Foundry VTT, but I also play on Roll20 sometimes and I noticed that they do have the visual aids and the actual integration with the virtual tabletops now, just like you were at the table and you make a physical X card or whatever card that you need or whatever tool that you need. The um, the expression that you might be uncomfortable or you need something in order to facilitate safe play. I think it can be difficult, especially if you don't have the language to express or to emphasize like why you're uncomfortable because a lot of the time when you're uncomfortable with something or it's just based on intuition it's just based on a feeling rather than something you can directly express uh, with your words and articulate in Mm -hmm. a way that other people are going to understand so I, I know that the common grognard response would be, you know, just be adults and talk to each other. A lot of people don't either want to explain what their trauma is, or they don't feel like it's, or they're not comfortable enough to do that with people that they're maybe playing with for the first time, or they've only been playing with for a certain amount of time. And I think um, that sort of perspective uh, is harmful towards the growth of the hobby because a lot of marginalized people do wear masks in order to get by in their daily life. And I mean, for instance, like my 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 girlfriend didn't even show me her real hair until I'd been <laughs> dating her for like two months. Like, and you know, and we'd already hooked up several times. Like, so like marginalized people for sure, like they wear a lot of masks um, in order to protect themselves because there, there are a lot of things that society and culturally we have done to make marginalized people's uh, lives more difficult and more vulnerable in a lot of ways. So I think something like the safety toolkit is really incredible. And the tools that have been developed by the various people like Monty Cook and Ron Edwards, and I am sorry if I butcher this, John Stavropoulos? Stavropoulos, uh, yeah. Stavropoulos. Um, Kira Magrin, and then, uh, you know, Misty Vander, so on and so forth. But yeah, and it's interesting because like if I go through like this list people, which I don't necessarily know anything about, but just by like looking at their last names, just like, oh, these people are from very different cultures. Um, And it's like kind of a worldwide thing in a way in that the people who probably needed this the most are the people who probably developed them because the game itself, and I say the game like tabletop games, just broadly, Dungeons and Dragons, was not originally made for marginalized people. Yeah, and our cult the culture of gaming has has also functionally been built without the presence and perspective of marginalized people. Not to say that they weren't present uh in gaming. We know for sure that marginalized people have been have been playing tabletop games forever. But generally our culture has shifted towards a very white centric, very cis hat normative centric, able bodied. There's a lot of different ways that people don't think about and and yeah, when people talk about just talk about it like adults. It's like, well this is a way of talking about it like adults just as you have systems for how you talk to each other and interact with each other in a game just via mechanics um, or like table culture rules you have a way of being able to talk about difficult things because we're people who are have feelings and, and needs and we should care for each other and sometimes that's hard to be vulnerable and it's hard to how to uh understand how to handle that vulnerability with each other. Also, I'm correct. <laughs> I'm incorrect. It was 2020 Eddie's. I was like, what year is it? I don't oh, okay, know what time exactly. exists anymore. Uh, <laughs> point still <don't> um, stands. 
Yeah, for sure. And I, I actually just had this, and this happens periodically, and I see it all the time, but it happened to me, of course, um, you know, Twitter being the dumpster fire that it is, you know. So I, I posted a thing, which was like, some people call it engagement farming, but you know, you and I both play the game, we're on Twitter. So uh-huh. <laughs> um, I posted, you know, I'm hosting my first like in-person game, what advice would you give me? And a bunch of people like gave me a bunch of advice, like, as though it was my first game ever. And I'm just like, no, I've run almost 400 games as of the time of this recording as a professional, like, online it's just like there's been a pandemic so i haven't like you know done it in person um except for a few times like with master conventions or whatever and um of course like someone posted the obligatory like um you know just don't bring politics into our games because us gamers don't want to see that and i'm just like i don't have that luxury of having my identity be non-political i'm sorry like um people politicize my identity and they're doing it right now because of local events um i say local but like national news events um and unfortunately those people who were murdered in Colorado pretty recently, and all of the laws that are being passed uh, in America against uh, queers in general, but trans people. There's more trans laws against trans people playing sports in America than there are trans people playing sports in America, um, which is astounding. The fact of the matter is, like, if you're a person of color or you're a queer or anything like that, then um, you don't have that luxury to just, like, turn that off because that's who you are. So um, coming to a common ground of being able to communicate, like, I'm uncomfortable with this and I'd rather not talk about it. I think it's the bare minimum. I think that yeah, I think an X card is the bare minimum. The ability to to um, address the game for the players. A lot of uh, what I see is we have the culture of the story is sacred. Uh, this idea that what happens at the table, like whatever happens is it's somehow separated from you as a player. Like this is just the the, the thing that is unfolding before us uh, and we can't change it. Like we can, we can push forward, we can adjust our trajectory going forward, but whatever has happened, it has happened. And instead, um, safety tools and the safety uh t- the ttrpg safety toolkit is really focused on what i have coined the principle of care which is the idea that we are caring for the people at the table through doing safety stuff and that means treating the players at your table as people uh who have again needs and vulnerabilities and feelings for yourself caring for yourself as a person and putting the player before uh because the game would not exist without the players and the gm and the people that are actually there sitting at the table whether physically or virtually rather than the story being sacred it's the the people that should be our commitment to caring for each other as people should be as well. Yeah, and definitely, and especially if you're going to be running something, or telling any sort of story, or you're you're in this collaborative environment in which you're involving other people. Who a lot of the time, when they're newer players, they will be more emotionally invested because they haven't had as many role playing experiences, and it's more difficult for them to separate from that. And if you're introducing them right away to something that can potentially cause trauma for them before they have learned a bit more separation before they have learned or been more experienced in it and like safely gotten there they aren't going to be coming back if they have a traumatic experience right up front like they're not coming back like they're they're the rpg horror story that you've read on uh reddit or twitter or wherever i i have one of those uh my very first uh my very first game experience uh, other than watching people play um uh my 
character uh, would put through sexual violence first session. Uh, and I, I left that game because that was not the vibe at the time. Again, like thinking back, I was like, I would have loved to have had safety tools or space where I knew safety tools existed and the ability to go, hey, that's not cool. We can talk about my character having a nightmare without involving uh, this trauma or this this right. really uncomfortable material. But I did not have ability to advocate for myself, and especially as a newer player, especially as the only non 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 man there. I'm not felt, surprised, but yeah, I, I I didn't. I felt like I didn't have the ability to communicate that or to express that because I at the time felt like this was the well, obviously this is the GM declares what the story is. Like I I just have to go with it. I was very lucky that I had enough of a kind of support group and also like a internet space of, of other marginalized people making it that I felt like I could keep going and I would not have made it to where I am right now if I did not have that. And yeah. so much of the safety toolkit for me personally is that people can start playing and continue to play and have fun with it and not get potentially turned off or you know traumatized uh by something that should be fun <laughs> yeah and i you know i hate to make this a, a trauma podcast but i had a very similar experience in which even there was something so that it so lines and veils for those that are unaware so a line is content that won't be included um and you've sort of established that with your group and then a veil is something that can occur but you sort of like pull the curtain on it you change the camera angle so it occurs but you don't go into graphic detail about it and i had this experience when I was um, quite a bit younger in my 20s and I had one of my characters where there was no consent gained before uh, they were put into a situation of sexual violence and that even though it was veiled, it was so distressing for me um, to continue playing that character that it completely ruined the experience. And I didn't want to internalize that sort of experience because even the act of it, right? So the act by itself is obviously terrible. But then the aftermath of like going through playing a person that has experienced that, that's like not how I would have fun. Obviously at a board game or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like we're trying to have fun, not be someone's plot point through your sexual violence trauma, which I... Yeah, and, yeah, and the thing is, like, it can be fun to explore these things, but, like, uh, you have to be able to know that people are good with it and also have people uh, empowered to, to say yes or no in the moment as well. Um, blanket permission is not enough. The ability to navigate and talk about and, and adjust as things go on is important because as a person, you'll have different different boundaries from year to year to month to month to day to day even. Lauren has this really great example where she was, you know, she had this game that was really kind of emotionally intense um, most of the time anyways, but she had a really bad day one day um, and in the game they came across a dog that seemed alone and she was like, hey, I'm going to use a safety tool here and be like, I would like it if the dog was not sad. Like, we're not going to do a tragic dog story. Like, the dog is not like, my owner's dead and I'm being sad about it. Like, we just want this is a happy dog and nothing's going to happen to the dog because she doesn't want to have a didn't want to have a sad dog that day because she was not feeling great. And by safety tools, you were able to kind of navigate that adjustments and changes because we're as people, we're not static. Games are not static. And so our ability to work through those things should not be static either. Yeah, I find that especially in my experience with so I only run it five times a week now because I just wrapped up my last uh, my first Curse of Strahd game, but I run it six times a week or I was running it six times a week. And I found that 
there was a very common like lines for people. Harm to domestic animals was one of them. They nobody likes that. Nobody <laughs> like, gonna, like yeah. There's a it's interesting seeing what what has changed. I I mean like harm to animals is one of them. There's actually one again talking about how things are have changed and are static. I have seen a drastic change in my friends' fails and lines. Uh, for those of them who have become parents since oh, yeah. we started Armed playing, children. Yeah. yeah, because at first you're like, yeah, that's fine. Like this, but as soon as you right. become a parent, that totally, it's totally different. Totally yeah, changes I, your perspective on those things. <laughs> I okay, so I t- actually when I explain safety tools to people who and I get players all the time who are perhaps older players or they're new and they just haven't used safety tools. But when you come into my game. I do the session zero, I do the safety tool, I do the checklist, everything. And um, part of that is like me explaining like, hey, here's how I've X-carded myself during a plot. Um, And it happened when I was the GM. I was like running this plot where in um, this this child in um, uh, Barovia, and I normally don't have harm to children, but I was like, I'm going to run this plot where this kid wants their dad's soul put to rest. And then like, while in the middle of running that plot and explaining what it was and like what is happening and like giving the quest to the party, I just started like bawling my eyes out, like in the middle of like role playing this NPCs because my kids had been like away on vacation for a couple of weeks and I just missed them. So it was just like, it triggered me. And I was just like, okay, well, I, I, I like got up from the table and I took a break and then I went downstairs and at the time my friend Kenzie had been living with me and I was like laughing at the same time I was crying. I was just like, I'm crying because <laughs> this NPC was really sad about their dead uh, dead dad. I'm actually getting worked up about it. Just thinking about it. That is something that has occurred to me and not the first or last time that I have used a safety tool. And I think a lot of the time, what has been expressed to me by a lot of these players has been that they didn't realize that they were going to use it or they didn't need it until they actually needed it. And it prevented them from having a really terrible experience when they did need it. Um, And I have inadvertently crossed some lines with people and they've used like the other tools to catch it or to let me know that they needed a break or something. And that has saved the game because especially I run horror all the time and that's deliberately about the removal of agency um, and you know things terrible things happen to your character so I do have to navigate a lot of these very tough subject matter pieces and do it in a way where I'm not just like ruining the experience for my players but yeah absolutely and and that's the thing too is that I know a lot of people have pushed back like well I've I've never had to use safety tools in my X number of years playing. And I'm like, well, you never know when you'll have to. Uh, it can be unexpected. Um, um, I like to, to use, there's several metaphors that I use uh, to talk about safety tools, but one of them is bungee jumping. You know, there's a thrill of letting yourself fall and seeing how far you're going to plummet and how fast and like the danger, the idea of danger is there. But I think you would prefer to have the cord attached to you and securely attached to something else than not. Um, or like seatbelts, like you, like people wear seatbelts in the car. You hope that you're not going to get into a car accident and you're not good, that you're, you're not going to get into a space that you, that the seatbelt will save your life, but you will hope that you have, you are wearing that all the time, even if you never actually are in a situation to use it because just in case it might be a situation. And like seatbelts are fairly new inventions. I, people, when seatbelts were, were put into cars, people were like, this is, this is ruining my fun of driving. How, how dare they, they, they add this in. Same thing. 
Same thing. Uh, like, obviously, you're not going to go through physical harm uh, playing a game uh, unless you're like at a LARP that doesn't have proper safety guidelines. But with TTRPGs, your your mental and emotional health is important. And safety tools are just the, the seatbelt there. They don't prevent you from doing things. They just protect you from when the bad things happen. Yeah, it's it's difficult to really judge when you're going to need safety tools until it's too late. It's it's something you're either you have prepared for or you're just going to... And to, to speak to the person who might be of the opinion, like, I've never had to use them before. Well, I would ask you how many people have left your table over the years. Or and how, how many, many times have you left a table? <laughs> exactly. Like, that, I had someone try to argue with me that they weren't going to use safety tools because they saw on a safety tool checklist that sexual content was listed and they didn't want to be a part of that. It's like, so you're justifying the use of safety tools by saying that you don't want that at your table. Like, simply the fact, I don't know, there's such a Puritan mindset to it that like, yeah. even the thought of like, somebody out there is exploring those subjects that um, I'm going to complete, I'm going to be completely turned off by safety tools because someone out there doing romance safety- role playing. Like- yeah, it's using safety tools to, to have fun exploring yeah. that you don't want to explore. Um, I found that people actually are more open to exploring things with me as a GM now that uh, I use safety tools since learning about them and like utilizing them more and particularly romance, um, which <laughs> I was not, maybe I just was never cued into the queer community <laughs> prior, <laughs> but um, since utilizing like safety tools and like a lot of very firm yet fair like rules about it like I can consent outside of the game not during the game before the game not at the table or these sort of plot lines and then I approach people if I feel like an NPC plot line with them a romantic plot line is meaningful um players have the ability to initiate with me and then I check in with them halfway through the game and then after the game every time that they are in some sort of romantic encounter um, just to make sure that they're feeling like everything is cool. Sometimes players come to me and it doesn't even have anything to do with me or what I'm doing, um, which is very important to understand. Like sometimes players come to me and say, I'm having a stressful time in my real life and I can't deal with this romance right now. So I just want to pause it or I want to get rid of it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's fine. You can just scalp this romance out and we'll just remove the content because it's ultimately like the only reason that we're doing this role-playing to begin with is so that you can have fun like if you're not having fun role-playing this romance like why am i doing this like so so that i can make you love irena kolyana no like (laughs) yeah exactly it's the rethinking about safety tools not as a restriction but as an empowerment right being able to speak up for yourself and talk um, frankly about your feelings and knowing that people that there's a system for it and people are going to listen and respect to that system means you're more empowered to go and explore things because you'll know how to talk about saying no or how to step back from things or how to add things where if you don't have those you're just kind of going well I don't I don't know what people are going to react to I don't know what people are going to say yeah so they just empower people to have better more fun games <laughs> absolutely um <sighs> Safety tools. 
They're so good. <laughs> um, I love them. Let's talk about Candlekeep Mysteries. What was your experience like? Um, was it like, did it feel like a cold, a cold email? Um, or did it feel like, or was it a cold email? That's what I, that's what I hear. Like I was talking to M, uh, Michaela Abel about their experience, uh, working uh, as the co-writer of Icewind Dale. They were like, yeah, I almost didn't get the job because I didn't check my Twitter DMs. Like Chris Perkins just DM'd me <laughs> and asked me if I wanted to write on something. Um, what was your experience like? Yeah. So, um, I got reached out to, um, by a, a coordinator there uh, because I had replied to a tweet uh, that Chris Perkins wrote um, uh-huh. that was like, hey, like, who are the new upcoming D&D designers? I was like, here, have some mm-hmm. things that I have written. Um, yeah, so it was only, it was like six months later, I got like this DM being like, hey, are you interested in writing writing for us as a, as a freelance contributor? I was like, sure. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting experience. I, I had come in you know, I had done a few freelance things beforehand, a lot of uh, self-published things. Mostly the big D&D project I had done at the time uh, was a solo adventure book that I co-wrote with Jonathan Fry called To Hell and Back Again. So I had some experience, but it was definitely kind of jarring for me to come into it, you know, working with Wizards of the Coast and stuff. I'm proud yeah. of what I wrote. It's, I think it's a very fun adventure. I've heard people say that's very fun. Uh, and I think I've done some really cool, interesting things there. People have, I, it, it came out about the same time that one division did and they share very oh. similar things in terms of yeah. like this is a like a constructed place of like you know that mm-hmm. someone is created and manipulating and the place that my my adventure is called the curious tale of wisteria vale mm-hmm. wv and so people are like was this intentional I'm like no that i wrote this adventure like a year before <laughs> one yeah. came out um, yeah i you know honestly the me reading through it and um i haven't run it yet but i've read through it and it, it's just such a this is initially like when i was considering like reaching out to you when i saw your post i like made sure i read through it and then it's so surreal and yeah. <laughs> it has so much of that sort of surrealist role-playing appeal. It's very, this is such a great adventure to include into a long campaign because of its surrealism. And you can basically, you can reskin the main NPC to be whoever you need it to be within your adventure that you're already currently running. So I personally think the design decisions for like, and how you've constructed it to be that way, to be kind of a surrealist um, environment for people to interact with this villain um and not necessarily a villain but like <laughs> I, I, he's kind of a villain he's a secondary antagonist yeah yeah um, yeah right he's my hot boy uh, <laughs> yeah it's it's done in such a way that it's like it's it's very easy to port in which i think especially for a lot of these candle keep mysteries some more than others but um i think overall the book overall did a really good job of that um and i really liked your uh adventure thank you um, which is I think obvious in itself because I reached out to you to work with you. <laughs> it's always nice to hear it, though. Us writers just thrive on positive feedback. <laughs> yeah. So much of our work is just thrown into the ether and we hope yeah. someone likes it. So, <laughs> Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's talk about Borg. So I personally had a little bit of experience running Pirate Borg, which is a different um, derivative of Mark Borg. Um, what's your experience? What was your experience like uh, working on the cyborg asset pack um 
that's when is that coming out? Is that is that already it out? Is out now? It, okay, it okay. just came out a couple weeks a week ago, okay. a week ago, I think. Yeah, so um, I got reached out to by uh, Johan, uh, who's one of the lead developers. I was like, hey. Uh, would you be interested in creating, writing one of the locations for Cyborg? Um, and the locations, uh, way that they've kind of developed them are really cool. It's basically, they had a list of like, here's potential places. Um, and all of it is rollable tables. Um, and Mm. so it's all like, okay, so you get to create what the rollable tables are for this place. Um, and talk about, you know, who's there or what is it used for or what cool things can the, the players find uh, when they're in the space. Uh, so I had a, the whole list um, that they gave me of like, here are potential ones. And I had a really hard time choosing which one it, I wanted to write for. Um, but I essentially uh, settled on the uh, the spa retreat because I thought that was such an interesting thing. You don't usually think about spas and cyberpunk. Um yeah. And so I was really thinking about like what cool body horror stuff because it's Morkborg. So there's like there's some weird magic and weird body horror transformation things. There's some weird, you know, uh, and Cyborg is really great cyberpunk and that doesn't lean away from the the kind of terribleness of living in a capitalistic dystopia. Uh, it really like goes hard into uh, how awful it is um, yeah. in a fun, cool way. Um, and so I got to really kind of uh, make some, make a really kind of messed up spa retreat uh, where in like some ways you have some things that are kind of like nice, like kind of fun or interesting uh, about it. Like one of the options for what is this place used for is a neutral ground between two different gangs. It exists exactly on its border. And so this is where you get fun little politics stuff of like two factions that can kind of exist and not want to kill each other here. Um, um, and provide some interesting opportunities for players. Uh, but I also have things like, what service does this place provide? And one of them is it, it helps rejuvenate people with the blood of the young and unwilling. Um, because what better way to describe how capitalism works uh, <laughs> than that? Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of a really, it was a very short assignment, but it was really cool. And I it really kind of kickstarted my like, yeah, I really like, like my favorite part of writing things for for games is writing faces, like locations and people and situations uh, for people to kind of show up in and work with. So that's kind of where all of my focus has been over the past year or so in terms of my my freelance stuff. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a cool it was a cool experience, and I I have always kind of admired Morkborg. It's not really a game I would play, but it's a game I'm I'm intrigued by by its design, yeah. um, and by you know what they do with it. Uh, so it's yeah. kind of cool to be like, oh yeah, like I got to kind of work for something here. Um, the board yeah. games are like beer and pretzels games because they're OSR. So they're like very yeah. old school. Like we're going to throw away your character in a funny way, like three times a yeah. session. And you can do that with that system. And I, and I've run the, the pirate Borg on foundry and you can actually automate that to where you just generate new pirates for people as soon as they die. And like, they have it within like 10 seconds. Um, that's great. Yeah. So it's, it's very, it's very helpful, especially with the, uh, the VTT support that they've lent it, lent to it. Um, and I find, especially for Borg games, um, I'm mostly interested in, because I'm with you, I, I don't like OSR style games as much, but the mini games are so fun to include. Um, mm-hmm. Like the ship bat- the ship combat from Pirate Borg is so great. I'm actually integrating it into my Critical Role games that I'm going to be running so that you'll have the Borg ship combat, um, which is way better than any D&D rulings on vehicle combat that I've seen. Um, and it's actually fun as well. So um, yeah, I think so, p- those things, you can still like appreciate them for what they are and i think um board games in general they do such a great job you can tell 
with the design decisions that they make, like they have a very clear vision and everything from like the art to the writing to the design is like very representative of what that vision is. So I look at a lot of board games, honestly, as like, I don't want to like be too like woo woo, but like they do seem to me like good, great pieces of art, just in like the holistic vision of like, this is, this feels like an experience altogether in itself. I'm not necessarily going to like every part of it, but I can appreciate why they did that. Absolutely. And I think that's such an important being game designer is looking at things that you don't particularly like or that you don't think you'll play and still finding what works for it and what's interesting about it and seeing why other people enjoy playing it. Like Mark Borg is like a really fascinating game design and the art book is and the book itself is like with this layout and everything is fascinating to read through um, lends to an idea of what you said like of games as art, games as a and holistic vision of not just the, the experience of play, but the experience of reading it, the experience of of looking through it, um, which is so so cool. I really love it. Uh, so yeah, it was a cool it was a cool little thing that I got to do. Yeah, I I really like also those style of games for low investment. Let's take a break from, in my case, Barovia, and <laughs> let, let's let's do something a little more lighthearted where we are just going to be talking about. Uh, or playing through a game that where we don't, the stakes are lower. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's talk about uh, Ironsworn Starforged. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Ironsworn Starforged. So fun thing. I've been playing Ironsworn for, I think, a couple years now. Uh, while I think about. Um, I've been playing it on, on stream uh, with my, my partners and friends. Um, and it's been a great game. And I've, uh, I really appreciate Sean Tompkins' work. Um, Starforged, uh, for those who don't know, is kind of PBTA Forge in the Dark Foundation, but it's its own system. Uh, it kind of takes place in this, you know, harsh kind of pulling on Nordic uh, roots um, in a way where your people travel the world fulfilling your vows um, and you create new vows and connections with the places and people that you come across. Um, so it's very fun uh, and it, it works really well uh, and designed for uh, solo play GMless play and GM to play, which is great. I love that flexibility. So yeah, so basically, um, when Sean was developing Starforged, which is the Iron Sworn but in space uh, edition, uh, he reached out to me and and Lauren and was like, "Hey, I would love to have uh, both of you come on and do safety work for it." Um, and this is a cool uh, kind of evolution from where we're at. Before we were talking about the TWP safety safety toolkit and how at the time a lot of the culture was just about safety tools and how we've seen the adoption of it. And now we're seeing this really great shift in uh, our game design spaces where we're thinking about how do we design our games to facilitate safe play. Um, and so people have added, you know, links to the TTRB safety toolkit or had put in like, hey, here are the safety tools that we generally like to use uh, in our games. Uh, but we're also seeing this push for designers to create uh, within the mechanics themselves, uh, either bespoke safety tools, things that are created specifically for the design for the design of the game and built into it, um, or just looking at the general uh, structure of the game and making sure that that process of checking with each other and setting boundaries um, and having those difficult conversations is, is part of it. Uh, so yeah, so Sean reached out to to the two of us and was like, "Hey, can you can you make some custom safety stuff in here?" So it wasn't just like a little blurb about this is why safety is important. Um, which has been some of my previous work. Um, 
but also like how do we create a safety tool specifically made for Starforge, um, which was a really great um, one, a really great uh, experience. Uh, Sean's a great person to work with, uh, but also too, it's a great w- great way for me to to have an example of how you can have built-in safety tools and how that works out really well uh, in a space. Um, so yeah, so basically we we uh, did a lot of conversation uh, and working through the, the mechanics of Starforge um, and we settled on what we called um, Wow, my session moves. So basically, uh, in Starforge, you have moves. Those are your main things. Kind of similar to Power of the Apocalypse game, where you're like, when you want to do X, do this move, roll dice, figure out result. Um, and so we're like, what if we just use that same kind of process, that same uh, gameplay cycle of, I want to do a thing, I use a move to accomplish it, uh, and apply it to safety stuff instead. And so we had uh, moves that allow you to say, when you want to adjust, you use this move, and here are some some suggested options of how you can uh, accomplish that. Like you can uh, we reverse it, or we fast forward through it, or we uh, we change one detail about it. Uh, going forward. And by making it a move, you're using the same mechanics as the rest of the game. And so it doesn't feel like a third party slap on thing uh, where you have to learn a new system. It's the same system, just with a different thing. Uh, And we expanded that out to also like, here's a session move for when you're starting play uh, and you haven't played in a while, you it's a basically a recap move. You you go through, you remember your recap, what happened, and you recap your your boundaries. Uh, we call it flags. Like you raise a little flag on certain content to be like, please don't do this. Um, which is also a move in itself. Setting a flag is is a uh, move on to itself. And we also have one for like taking a break. Uh, and uh, it was a unique thing to think about safety in terms of solo play as well, because that's what Starforce is, is being able to facilitate those types of play. Um, because most people are like, why would I need safety tools when I'm playing by myself? Like I'm not dealing with other people. But it's really easy uh, when you're as a solo player uh, to kind of get caught up and like what you're doing until you realize, wait, I've I've gotten myself into a place where I'm not comfortable with anymore. Um, like, yeah, oh, and so the game giving you permission through which mechanics to back out of that in some way, which is adjust it, is really helpful, uh, whether you're playing with other people or not. So yeah, so that was that was the work we got to do for Starforge, um, and it's been really really fascinating to see the feedback from it. People have really liked it, which is a relief for me. Love that. Uh, but it's also been really fascinating here. Like, yeah, this makes safety tools make more sense to me or how to do safe gameplay. And it's solving that problem of where people feel that a lot of uh, external safety tools being put on top of a thing, that means it's not integrated and people don't know when or where to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by just building it into mechanics itself, we can put that straight in there. You know exactly when and how to use it. And it's not like a totally different thing to you. It's not foreign. And it's very helpful for new players too, because again, it's just built into the game is not a special thing unto itself, um, which a lot of people feel weird about too. It's like, this is a special thing that I can only use in special circumstances. We're like, no, use this thing whenever you want to just change the thing. That's fine. It's the exact same type of move as if you would just wanted to go, I want to go and sneak behind this thing. Or I want to go and uh, shoot a thing. Same thing. Just adjusting more in a meta gameplay sense than a in-story sense. It makes sense. Um, I find it to be... Really interesting that when you describe flags 
And I'm just thinking to myself, like, yeah, sometimes when I sit down to watch a show, which is rarer now because uh, my hobby has consumed my life. <laughs> um, but when I, sometimes when I sit down to watch a show, I'm just like, I don't want to watch a particular type of show. It could be my favorite show, but I am not currently in the mood for that show. And I think that's a very interesting way to look at it is with the flag system that you've described. That's that's brilliant. I like yeah, that. Yeah, and it, it gives it it gives this um, idea because we're we're looking really at the language too of the game and the themes, right? If you're doing something in space that's kind of you know Mandalorian, Firefly esque, you kind of want to we made sure our language fit into that general feel of a game. The same, same idea, holistic vibe. <laughs> I'm all about vibes and ensuring that vibes are are stay, are kept the way that they are. Um, and so being able to kind of be like, yeah, we're not creating lines and veils, same function basically, uh, but we're we're raising a flag on a thing. We're saying, hey, we'd like to 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 set a marker here and say, hey, pay attention to this. If it comes up, can we make sure that we talk about it and we we say, do we want this or not want this at the moment? And that can be flexible because you can very easily put a flag in the thing and also take it back out if you need to. So yeah, that's it's, it was a fun project. Uh, that's that's so cool. Um, I guess I'm gonna have to check it out. <laughs> Because uh, you've sold you've sold me on it. <laughs> I mean, I'm biased, but it's it's a yeah. great system, and I've I've been starting up a game in Star Force, and it's been very fun. It, especially if you like those stories of like uh, people in space, not Star Trek or Star Wars style, but like the Mandalorian or the Firefly, where it's kind of like mm-hmm. scrappy groups um, spread across a kind of post-apocalyptic ruined, uh, and just like kind of again the exploring places, creating vows. Uh, so you you swear a vow to fulfill something, to do a quest or to fulfill a personal quest of yours, uh, and then creating connections with the people and places you come across by creating vows and stuff. It's very fun uh, if you like that kind of travel esque. Um, let's talk about Archon, your setting. Hell yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So Archon um, is a cyberpunk setting book, uh, for, for TTRPGs, a system agnostic, um, co-created by myself and my very good friend, Jason Coutreau. It's a funny story. Um, I guess, um, to talk about it, one, it's award-winning now. That's weird to think about. Is Um, it? Did you win an award? Oh my God. It won, uh, (laughs) it was the best setting for, uh, in the Indie Groundbreaker Awards this year. So that's fun. (laughs) Thank you. Um, yeah, because it, it's funny to think about that because this setting originally started off the, the setting we were making on the go between myself and Jason as we were playing, doing a text RP. We, were, we wanted to do a text RP of, of Cyberpunk and we we're like, well, we don't want to want to play like in any of the other system settings out there go for it and we kind of just winged it like we would just be doing something we'd be like okay we need to talk about how this functions or like what is the name of this corporation that we're involving now and over time we had created our own setting we we're like maybe this might be interesting for other people um especially for myself um i love cyberpunk as a genre um probably one of my favorite things uh, I love the the exploration of transhumanism. I love the uh, criticism of capitalism. I love the uh, ability to look at how technology and humanity influence each other and work with each other, um, especially, again, in a hyper-capitalist society that we live in. But I got turned off by a lot of mainstream cyberpunk media because so much of it was also including bigotries that I didn't want to explore in my games that felt too crucial to those settings to take out. 
um, like a lot of stuff about ableism, like the idea of um, if you have too many cybernetics, you're no longer a person, was not interesting to me, but was very prevalent in a lot of games, not just games, like any form of media around cyberpunk tends to focus in on that. Uh, so there's a lot of these, these bigotries that were involved and also a lot of feelings of like nihilism, which like to some sense, cyberpunk does function on the theme of nihilism. It requires kind of that idea of it's almost... Uh, you know, useless to fight back, which is an interesting to explore in a book, but I didn't find very interesting to explore in a game where I would be like, but I want to make change happen. Like that's me playing this game. It's me doing, affecting something in the world. And a lot of the nihilism that we built into a lot of these uh, settings that I found were very like, well, you have to be part of the machine to do anything. I'm like, oh, that's not, that doesn't sound very punk to me. <laughs> uh, and we've seen this a lot too, where a lot of the the more recent cyberpunk stuff has been, well, not even more recent, within the cyberpunk within the past 20 years has been a lot of like, here's the aesthetic of cyberpunk, but not really the, the, core messaging about again criticism of capitalism uh about the exploitation of bodies and technology in the world and so we uh, jason and i when we were sitting down we were looking at setting uh we had made diff uh, we had uh, published several games together at that point uh and we're like why don't we just wrote this and put this out for the world to see and so yeah so we we had developed these very specific principles uh of what cyberpunk meant for us um, and what the setting of Archon was going to explore. So the idea, we very specifically say, like, corporations cannot be good. Simply cannot. Um, they can do good things, but the existence of a corporation means that something's wrong. <laughs> um, which I think holds true, uh, but is a very specific part of how we approached the rest of the setting. And so we created so many of these. And then we kind of did perk several months. Uh, we created uh, the history of Archon, which is this kind of post-apocalyptic, isolated city, uh, which uh, is functions on, on corporations running the government, basically. We have groups of people uh, who come from in and out of the city um, to try to affect change. And they all have different ideas of how to make change happen. For example, like the... Um, the Druids um, are people from who live outside of the city in the, the post like nuclear wasteland. Uh, and they come in and they they feel like their their way of making change happen is being from the outside and being able to uncover the, the history and secrets that lay out there and coming in and sharing that information uh, inside uh, versus like the punkers uh, who think that the only way to, or the main way of change of making change happen is by violence because they see violence happening towards them and so they revert that violence back towards um corporate overlords we also have a bunch of cool like locations in there like we thought really hard about the geography of the place and how different parts of the city would have different functions uh, we spent so much time thinking about how does a city that basically unto itself work um and we <laughs> developed so many systems of like how does water work how does food work how does how do dead bodies work like what happens uh and yeah so we we developed this out and we put it out on on itch.io as like crowdfunding uh or itch funding um mostly just so that we could be like hey we'd like to get like actual art in this that's not just stock photos um i would like to you know get an editor we edited this ourselves we did not get anyone to help us um and it did really well um to our surprise we were like yeah we'll we'll make this goal like super long like we're not we're not aiming to do this in 30 days we're doing this in like several months like whenever people will do it and it funded in like seven hours and we're like oh okay <laughs> uh guess that's something we should do um and 
through the generosity of people who uh, crowdfunded, we were able to uh, hire artists. We were able to hire someone to make a map for us. We were able to hire interior art. Uh, we were also able to get a layout artist, which is great. I didn't have to do it by myself anymore. Um, <laughs> Um, and we were also able to hire writers. Um, we were able to hire people to come in and add on to the city. So it wasn't just myself and Jason. Um, our vision of the city was also the ability to have more factions and people uh, and interesting uh, things that can be added to this world and made uh, even more alive. And we were very careful to be like, we're going to pick people from different uh, marginalized backgrounds and make sure that we have that variety and diversity and voice and perspective especially myself uh i wouldn't have gotten where i was without people taking a chance on me as a as a new and upcoming designer and so i want to pass on the favor and i was able to do that which was yeah and then we we were able to uh make a publishing deal uh with uh metal weave games and get it published in print um which is great that's cool so yeah it's, it's, it was kind of our first like really big project that we were able to do uh, and i'm still very proud of our account i think it i think it does really well uh for what we were going for which was to to take a new a new look at cyberpunk and make it for the modern century and what our concerns are now for example we have uh we have a a banking like corporation that functions on crypto and we very specifically go hey crypto's bad like we don't we we we, we frame it all in this we make sure that everything's framed in a specific way uh, according to our principles of design uh, which are stated pretty close up front that's that's archon <laughs> in a not very short blurb <laughs> No, that's perfectly fine. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. All of that. So, um, I think that perhaps when did you start working on this? I have to ask. Like, oh boy, uh, let me. I'm I'm gonna go look up when I did that because I think it was when did we start writing this? Do, 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 do. Uh, uh, we we started writing this December of 2020. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And then we pushed it out to, um, for itch funding, end of May 2021. So I, so I approached you about the vineyard right before anybody knew about this. Basically. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Would you like to write in a Victorian corporate setting? (laughs) Oh, okay. Fair enough. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, I'm, do you, how do you think that this would, um, what do you think system wise, not that you have to necessarily endorse this system, but system wise, what do you think lends itself to this setting best? So, um, that's a difficult one. Uh, as so so many uh, systems out there really function on their settings, like they're kind of intertwined, especially in the cyberpunk genre. Right. Um, so it's kind of hard to piece them out. Um, I've heard some really really good things about. Um, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's a CBR plus punk. Basically, it's it's a different. Where is it? Yeah, PNK. Yeah, cyberpunk. It's basically a force in the dark system, which is funny enough. Jason and I, at part of the the crowdfunding, we set a stretch goal. Uh, like a really far out stretch goal that we thought we wouldn't hit. Of like, we'll make a system for this, and we did hit it. Uh, uh, so uh, he and I are working on that right now. We're working on the Archon system, which is you know kind of meant to go with the setting, but we're also hoping people can kind of for their own stuff as well. So that's that's been fun. Uh, it's kind of slow going. Uh, we kind of we got a little Archoned out uh, after we because we had wrote it so intensely for like four months right. uh, that when it got published out and we we then coordinated more work after that, like throughout the end of, 
of 2021 into 2022 uh, coordinating all the other writers and the artists and the, the print edition. And we're just like, we need, a, we need a break. We just need to not think about this project for like a, few, a while. So yeah, but we're, we're slowly working on development and we're, 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 we're going to be taking some stuff from Blades in the Dark. We're going to be taking some stuff from uh, Urban Shadows. We're going to be taking some stuff from a bunch of other systems that we, we enjoy and kind of pulling them together. But um, yeah, yeah, fast in the development. That's working. So <laughs> Okay, then. Well, it's perfect question then. As far as, uh, do you have any idea on how long you're going to be or just like you're at this point, you don't have a projection on when you're going to finish that? At this point, we're, we're still kind of just kind of keeping it open. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's uh, important for us to be able to have the room to play test it and have yeah. the room to, to adjust it um, over time, especially since most of the games we have created before have been very small things, like a lot of like solo journaling stuff or a lot of like short one session things. And we're taking, you know, this is going to be a multi multiplayer likely GM'd type of situation with dice and uh, that we normally don't work with where we're, we're going to be tinkering at it for a while. Um, we're, we're like maybe 2024, but who knows? Right. Who knows with the world of ours that we live in? <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Um, I totally, I totally get you on the, uh, on the burnout side as well. Um, as far as like just being, I, I think some weeks now I built into my writing schedule. Um, this week I'm not going to write anything. And that's just in, as important for me as yep. the time that I have scheduled for writing is just like this week, I'm not going to do anything for my writing. I'm just going to do my normal work and then, you know, not have to worry about my other side hustle, which is writing. Yeah. It's um, so interesting because you, when you spend so much time in one single project, it just kind of becomes your whole life for a bit. And then when you're yeah. done, you're like, oh, there's all the exhaustion that yeah. I had set aside. I had, I had just compartmentalized and put in a box uh, to address later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let me know if you need contributors for that. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> talk about that we're, later. We're, th yeah. we're thinking about... Um, Obviously, I think the the capital that we got from the crowdfunding is enough for us to kind of pay ourselves for writing. Mm -hmm. But uh, we are definitely considering doing another uh, another uh, run just to like to have that privilege to be able to hire people to be part of it because I think right. it's a it's a great thing. Uh, but we really believe in pay our, our I both of us believe uh, in our in paying our uh, contributors uh, well and equitably. Uh, that's a big part of our stuff are we gonna pivot to that because we could i i could talk we about could that pivot. all day i, I mean we could pivot to if we wanted to but <laughs> um okay so to be mindful of your time because we've already been talking for so long um for me like lowest paying job i've ever had was five cents a word which <laughs> obviously like when you don't have a huge portfolio it's it's difficult to sort of demand higher rates but at the same time like it comes become it, it becomes like a catch-22 right how do you get into writing if you can't justify the amount of time that you're spending writing because you're not being paid a living wage, right? Exactly. Um, and again, I, I would not be here if it wasn't for people taking a chance on me. Um, like I, my first writing gig was 10 cents a word. Um, it was great. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of the work that I did there. And I was very new at the time in terms of writing. Uh, I had made a name for myself as an actual play performer. Uh, but at the time, I had published a few games myself, and that was about it. So I was I was very lucky to have someone 
be like, hey, I'm really interested in having you part of this, and also set the standard for me really fast about this is bare minimum. And I have not taken a job since, uh, unless it was like something very much where it's like this, I need to put it, I want on my resume, or I strongly believe in what they're doing. And we're doing a trade of some other way, like I do some writing, they do something else for me. So there's some other, you know, or uh, forms of fair compensation, I believe. I... The, I have always been 10 cents a word minimum and I have managed to coach by fine and <laughs> doing that. Yeah. It boggles my mind, some publishers and what their rates are, quite honestly. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I have this discussion with a lot of contributors um, in that a lot of them will just, because the big studios um, have so much name clout and the byline is very important for an author to pad their portfolio in order to get the gigs that they want that will pay better, they will take lower paying jobs and they'll be taken advantage of a little bit in order to just get the byline on whatever it is that they were contributing in order to provide themselves with more opportunities. So I think it's it it, it becomes though kind of a dangerous game though because when you're full of a, a market of amateur writers trying to make it who will do it, who will always do it for less than someone who's trying to do this full time, then you're never going to be paid a living wage. And that's currently where we're at. Yeah, it's it's a really unfortunate cycle. Um, but yeah, I was I was lucky to have someone who, who set that standard for me. And also, um, at the time, there was the document floating around of the QDPOC, like payment standards for queer, uh, trans people of color. Like, this is how much you should be charging for your writing or for your your appearances on on streams or panels and stuff like that and that really helped me at the time being like okay this is this is what is actually good don't get swayed by the you know oh but you'll never get work if you if you won't take the lower penny jobs i've always like for people i've talked to like if they really want to do it um go ahead like on that lower rate but it's got to be something it's got to give you something in return for example like being like okay this is this is a big thing i can put on my portfolio and that's enough for me. But yeah, otherwise, I think I think it's just so so important to be like, oh, pay your people well, <laughs> especially for crowdfunding. Build that into your thing. <laughs> Stop being like, yeah, I crowdfunded this thing, and but I can't pay my people fairly for it. Like that should have been part of your budget. <laughs> where where did all the money go? <laughs> yeah, what, what happened? Did, <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it, that that always blows my mind too. It's like I look at your Kickstarter and like, okay, so you raised. 50, 100, 200, $300,000. You're telling me that you could not have raised another $5,000 to pay people? Like, yeah. it's silly. Like, why was that not part of your planning? Yeah. Like, it's just as important as paying for your print or paying for your, your print product or paying for the, the art, paying the people to write things. Just as important there. Um, When are we unionizing, Kiana? Like, I mean, I'm all for it. <laughs> Uh, maybe at some point. Um, but yeah, I think there's a there. I think there's some small publishers who are really setting uh, the example because they can, and more power to them. Uh, Matt Colville comes to mind. In that's where I initially was cued into the twenty five cents a word rate um, that they are doing because they were just more interested in uh, attracting the right people. Um, yeah who would set aside time to contribute and like write really cool stuff. Um, and that's sort of their model. Of course, Matt has that huge platform along with James um, and the uh, skills that they have to be able to gather those particular people. Um, 
So that's already been built. And I think it's a good model for a lot of people, um, especially after you have built a very large audience to be able to monetize in that way. Because if people are going to pay you money, you might as well be paying your contributors well to help you uplift your products and like put out content that people want to people want to read. You know that if you're coming to top level designers or writers anyway, people are going to want that content, right? So why would you undercut their pay? You want them to work with you again, right? I don't know. It just makes sense to me personally. I don't know. It really does. And again, just like your game that you're playing did not exist without the people at the table, the the game you are writing or creating does not exist with the people without the people that are contributing to it. So like treat them like people and give them fair price. Like, I feel like that's just basic. I feel like that's just basic stuff. <laughs> yeah. But it, just, it, it, like, again, a lot of this is just cultural shift that we're still kind of working through. We're in that awkward growth phase. But, like, for me, I'm a people person. Like, I'm a people first person. So I'm just like, this feels, this feels like it should be a given. <laughs> it feels like a given that we should be thinking about this stuff. I guess not for, for some people, but. I think the barrier for a lot of people is that when you're an indie creator, and I'd like your perspective on this as well. um, If you're an indie creator, you haven't learned marketing, you haven't learned sales. So a lot of people like, oh, I don't know how to make more money doing this. So this is my very limited budget. So instead of taking the time to learn sales, marketing, or getting the right connections or finding a way to make more money, they will just settle for the lesser budget and they will just accept it. And that's, that's, I think is, is I can understand it. I understand that thinking is a scarcity thinking, right? It's a scarcity thinking that comes from capitalism. Um, But I think so much of what we need to talk about is let's look at the alternatives, right? For example, alternative of going, hey, I would really like you to write something for my project. I can't pay you that much, but I offer my editing for this other project you're working on. And that's what we can do. We can do a trade of services. Great. Awesome. Or just, yeah, any other of these other options out there. Again, people focus, community focus options, which is not just, well, I can't pay you that much. So too bad. Right. Let's shift to talking about the vineyard and your contribution, which I'm so excited about. And I have waited this exact moment to <laughs> show you something that I think in our audience will not have this available to them because we don't shoot video, but they just get to hear your reaction, I suppose. I'm going to show you the first draft of The Confessor from your scene. So Yay. let me get, let me pull that up real quick. All right, here you are. I'm going to DM it to you. Great. And let's start talking about The Confessor. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, so I am a contributing writer for The Vineyard. Um, Specifically, I have written The Whisperborn, which is our our new lineage that we have we have created for for this which then also involves the secret the magic of secrets which is a whole nother fun mechanical thing to work with but i have also created one of the lieutenants and specifically confessor Estilias, who is a whisperborn and i'm i'm, I'm so hyped about this art preview yorsi's work is just very chef's kiss oh, and i i have to live in myself like a kid in a candy store because i want to just throw the fifteen thousand 
thousand dollars that you'll see right now instead yeah. of afterward, but I can't afford to do that right now. <laughs> so I'm like limited on the amount of pieces that he can do before we go to crowdfunding because we're only getting enough art to go to the thing. But um, can you talk about what is a Whisper Born? Yes, so Whisper Born are people made out of secrets, quite literally. So in the world of the vineyard, we have the goddess, uh, the Wandering Mother. She is the, the deity of secrets, the night, and penance, and truth. And so the Whisperborn are, are her people. Basically, we have this whole origin story where someone, you know, was had committed a great crime and uh, was find, trying to find penance, and the, the, uh, the Wandering Mother came to to them i was like just lay all your your burdens on me confess everything to me and i will i will carry this with you and so that was the kind of founding of the the group of worshippers around the wandering mother and part of that worship is the sacred bonfire which is the same fire that that person did that first confessional through and through that sacred fire and through the magic of the wandering mother basically people can offer up secrets to her in exchange for different things so mostly this idea of being able to be relieved of the secrets that you hold on to and she will take those secrets and bring them to life as a person so whisperborns are the people that are formed out of these and they're they're fun they're interesting basically they have this kind of smoke-like form uh, which solidifies over time, but will slowly fade if they don't feed more secrets to the Wandering Mother. And they do so via a, where the heart would be, there is a little flame uh, that exists there, just a just a hollow with a fire in it. And they can feed the secrets to it and it goes to the Wandering Mother and therefore also solidifies their form in the world. Basically, this secret is of their core foundational self. So if anyone learns about that secret, unravels that person. It makes them cease to exist uh, until the wandering mother decides to breathe life to it again. And that can only happen when they're in the Citadel. <laughs> so that's fun. So yeah, so basically Friday gave me this really great, like, here, here are kind of the people that I was thinking about. Can you go off of this? I was like, yes, please give me the weird the weird people made out of secrets. Just give, give me the weirdos. Let me let me make them even more weird. And it worked. So basically, um, they have this very inherent connection to the wanting mother. They also have this very inherent connection to to secrets as magic, as which is a, a kind of a core theme in the vineyard as well. That secrets have and knowledge has power. And these are just people that kind of are manifestations of that specific idea. Yeah, so that's super. Uh, that was super fun to make. And then from there, I also made the clerical order of the wandering mother which is specifically the religious order that has come around to worship the wandering mother the whisper born and the clerical order have overlapped but are not the same groups necessarily you can have a a, a whisper born who's not a worshiper of the wandering mother and just kind of have to like feed secrets that's just like a necessity the same way that you have to eat food as a necessity and there are some people who who worship the wandering mother as part of the clerical order who are not whisper born there's just other people so yeah and from there i therefore made the lieutenant that was, that was signed to be a whisper born who uh, is a confessor, someone who goes around getting secrets in the form of confessions to worship the Wandering Mother. And that's Confessor Stilius. And she is not a good person. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's a blanket statement for most right. of the lieutenants. They're yeah. not good 
people. But uh, specifically, Confessor Astilius has this very puritanical view, this idea of wanting to make sure that the, the citadel is spiritually pure, unburdened by sins and sins as secrets. This idea of the wandering mother is the only true god here. And that, you know, anyone who strays from the past, uh, even the other lieutenants, is, is worthy of going through some questionable methods of purification in her in her view and in her view she thinks she's totally justified she this is not torture this is not malice or she's not trying to hurt people she thinks that this is a gift that she is giving to the people that they will be pure and good and ready for uh the wandering mother's embrace so yeah she's kind of terrible a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the inspiration came from a lot of the the criticism and views about our about purity uh, about our puritanical views about stuff. A lot of stuff looking into Christianity and like the the Inquisition and all this idea, this stuff of like and of missionaries. This idea of like I know but be- I know what's spiritually better for you and this is my so Yeah. It is my so goal to spread my religion and this is and why not, you should do this. Yeah. And it's not just because it's for me, it's it's saving you, right? It's this, this whole framing of this kind of savior complex, which happens. So, yeah, so she was very fun to write. She's not a fun person to be around, I don't think. <laughs> she, she doesn't have a lot of, like, the, the clerical order of the wandering mother thinks she's extreme. Like, they've kind of cut off ties from her because they're like, you take this way too far. Um, right. That's, she, she's, an, she's an extremist. She's an, <laughs> I think she's there's something... Level. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something very compelling, though, about a modus operandi from a villain uh, NPC that you can run as a GM that says, let me save you from your secret. And when pe- because w- if people find out your secret, it's going to cause a lot of harm to you. And having an NPC like that, who you can have this sort of shadow relationship with, I think is very interesting from a storytelling device. Yeah, um, and it's also interesting because her whole thing is kind of couched in the softness and this like idea of like good right this she she very much takes this like oh i'm i'm here to talk to you and like you seem so worried about this thing you can share it with me it's the same it's it's kind of manipulating this the 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 origin myth this idea of like hey if you and in some way but it's true if you talk to someone about something it usually helps your burden with dealing with it but uh confessor stilius in her in her mind uh has ended up warping this to a total extreme where she's like okay well if this is the case then therefore everyone should share things no one should have a secret except whisperborn who have the exemption of the secret that forms their self so she's like yeah that makes sense i i i am also the same uh, <laughs> but otherwise it's this idea of like no no one's allowed to have privacy in their own truth basically which is uh kind of messed up when you take it that far uh, <laughs> uh, yeah I think um, also going back to just a callback to uh, adjusting mechanics to be able to suit any table with your work on uh, Starforged and what we're doing me and VJ working on the stat block for this NPC is we are coming up with those non-torture uh, alternatives that can mm-hmm. be still used like mechanically uh, against the party. So you don't necessarily like have to like personally, I don't as much enjoy role playing torture, but I'm okay with it being veiled. So I would be someone that would use something like that because I don't necessarily want to describe like grotesque descriptions of like someone being harmed in that way. But but we're like sort of manipulating what we can mechanically for how to utilize this 
villain in a way that's compelling and interesting for people to participate with, not have just something happen to your PC around. And I think that's a key component of something that's interesting about a villain like this is like you want the party to interact with this NPC, not to just yeah. see show up once and have one monologue and then you fight them. No, she is very much a someone who's always present and someone again, she she kind of manipulating even if she doesn't think she is, she's manipulating people. And her whole thing is, yeah, it's not these grandiose acts of violence or of, of, of oppression. Her oppression is this very couch in niceness, which is how a lot of our, our, in real life, a lot of ways that oppression gets gets passed through and without people noticing it, it's because it's, it's in this package of, oh, but they're so nice. And that's the whole thing with her. She's so nice. She's a nice person. She just wants to alleviate your burdens. Just, you know, talk to her. And that's kind of part of the thing is like, she's just like, I just, I'm so glad that you're open to talking about the truth. Like, I just, I'm here, I'm here for you. That's her whole job. That's her whole vibe. If I can just quote some of your writing, Mm -hmm. um, the descriptive text that we provide in these stat blocks, which you may be familiar with, if you have taken a look at the Siren preview PDF that we put out in public. But for the confessor, you've written for a diplomacy option. If you need some place to get going with some of the conversations and things like that with these NPCs, that's what we've kind of leveraged a lot of these tap blocks to be able to do these these dossiers. Under the gaze of the wandering mother, no one should keep secrets. You will speak honestly, then I will listen. That's so sweet, isn't it? That's yeah, she's just so nice, right? That's the whole thing. Is that like and and her a lot of the the features and the way that's what I love about the art that I'm so excited about. The idea that she just has a very carefully tempered like uh, attitude. She is always calm. She is always smiling. She's always just like, yeah, like why wouldn't you trust her? Type vibes. So the answer is no. You should not trust her, uh, but not. Because she's going to take your secret and, like, go spread it to other people. Or not because, oh, she's going to stab you in the back. But because she does not have your, although she thinks she has your inten- your, your good intentions and you're, as a, as a person in heart, she did not. And she, she thinks that she's doing things for you. She is not. Yeah, I think that the confessor is especially interesting also because, as written, she's very off-putting. And you... Yeah. Don't quite know how to interact. Like, if I'm a player and I encounter an NPC like this, and they use, like, the introduction line that you put here, like, don't let those worries furrow your brow, my child. Confess all to me, and the wandering mother will carry your sins for you. You're, like, immediately, like... This seems like religious trauma. Like I need to, I need to be, I need to be careful. Um, yeah, I, I think it was. I think the most flattering thing you have said. You have said many, many kind things about my work. Uh, but one of the most flattering things was when I mentioned that I did not have any religious trauma. I've had a very good childhood and and raising about religion. Uh, my parents were very like, go f- do whatever you want. That you were. You looked at this said. I think Kiana went through, worked through some religious trauma and therapy. Great. That's exactly what I wanted to come across. Thanks for my my uh, childhood fascination with medieval Christianity and, right. and the, the Inquisition. That was, that was a special interest of mine as, you know, a 10-year-old. Uh, no, I can I can tell. You did some reading. <laughs> you did some reading. Uh, I, I was raised Baptist, so uh, I'm not religious any longer, but uh, I was raised Baptist. So, like, I was like, ooh, this seems like we have some things to talk about. It's like, I'm there for you. <laughs> 
um, okay. So, uh, and also I wanted to uh, open the floor to you as we are wrapping up uh, to talk about anything that you have coming on the horizon, uh, anything that uh, we are going to link down in the show notes, which we will, of course, be linking your cyberpunk setting, um, Archon, um, and some of the other work that you've done. Did you have anything on top of mind that you wanted to tell us about? Yeah, so um, when does this episode come out? Because that will It'll determine... January? Perfect, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've got a couple of, of self-published stuff in the works right now. As I talked about, we also have Archon uh, coming up. By now, We uh, I will have released with Jonathan Fry, the person that I wrote the uh, solo adventure with, another solo adventure based in Dragonlance. It's called The Test of High Sorcery. We are we have taken the testify sorcery and we've made it into a kind of choose your own adventure style book where people can go through and do their own tests in it. So that should be out on DM's Guild by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, so that's that's my my big thing right now. But everything else is under NDA, as is the the, the every all the time life of being a freelancer is just being stuck in NDA land and hoping that something will be announced soon. <laughs> Yeah, that's how it is. Yep. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, and anybody speaking out, Kiana, uh, and some of her amazing work, uh, we have those links in the show notes. And thank you to everyone who is supporting this podcast, which now allows me to edit these things, uh, which is great. Now we can do that. Um, so if you'd like to support the podcast uh my patreon link is somewhere like somewhere that you've either found (laughs) yeah it'll be somewhere um but thanks bye bye thank you